This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Atlassian's Ops Genie. Incidents happen. Thankfully, Ops Genie empowers dev and ops teams to plan for service disruptions and stay in control during incidents. It also gives teams the power to respond quickly and efficiently to unplanned issues and helps to notify all the right people through a smart combination of scheduling and escalation paths. With Ops Genie, your next incident doesn't stand a chance. Visit OpsGenie.com to sign up to get a free company account and to add up to five team members. That's OpsGenie.com, O-P-S-G-E-N-I-E.com. Never miss a critical alert again with OpsGenie. Welcome to the Science Podcast for December 21st, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. This is the last podcast of the year, and we're going to celebrate with a roundup of the top online news stories, according to David Grimm, and we'll hear from news editor Tim Appenzeller. He talks with Megan Cantwell about this year's breakthrough of the year and some of the runners' up and breakdowns. And finally, we'll have a look back at the year in books with Jen Golbeck, our book's host, and science books editor, Valerie Thompson. First up today, we have David Grimm, the online news editor for Science. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sarah. So you're bringing us some of the top 10 online news stories for the year. That's right. We have a top 10 list, but unlike other uh, science (laughs) news top 10 lists, you know, we tend not to focus on the most important science of the year. We sort of leave that for our breakthrough of the year issue. We sort of focus on our favorite stories of the year. Yeah. And that's our sort of a mix of our personal favorites as staff, but also the stories that did very well traffic or why. So the stories that were... The audience favorites. Audience favorites, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So what was your favorite? You had a big hand in picking these. What's your yes. favorite story of the year? Well, you know, I, 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 I think it was probably this one. It's a really fun story. It's about the longest straight line journey on Earth. And so it's actually a water journey. So the question is, if you had a boat and say you didn't have a steering wheel on your boat (laughs) and you wanted to be on your boat for a very long time, what is the path that you could take that would put you on the longest straight journey on Earth that you would never have to turn the wheel, that you could just keep on going in a straight line, what felt like forever? And this is a question that originated on Reddit. And then 
who figured out the answer? Well, that's the other fun thing about this story. Didn't it, this is not a very traditional study for us. So there wasn't like you know a bunch of scientists coming up with a research project and getting funding, and then it took years and years and years. This actually started as a Reddit post uh, a few years ago. Somebody had seen a post on Wikipedia about what might be the longest straight line right. on Earth, so he decided to post what he thought it was. And then a couple of scientists saw the post and they said, well, we can go ahead and try to prove this. We can use geometry and all these very complicated, high detailed maps of Earth. And they, that's what they went ahead and they did. And they found this path that basically goes from southern Pakistan to northern Russia that would yield a trip of about 32,000 wow. kilometers. Time to get in, get in your sailboat, Dave. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's talk about one that had good numbers. So a story that performed really well. And I mean, for good reason, it's also a really interesting story. I'm talking about the pelvis story. That's right. So this was one of our most popular stories of the year. And it has to do with something called the obstetrical dilemma. And this is this sort of long held evolutionary theory that the woman's pelvis has to be kind of this, it's a kind of a tug of war between two evolutionary forces. It can't be too wide, which would make childbirth are very easy, but it would make walking very difficult. Oh. And obviously it can't be too narrow for sort of the opposite reasons. So because of that, researchers have sort of long assumed that all pelvis shapes around the world must be pretty similar because they have to kind of deal with the same forces, forces right? Yeah. And that's not what they found. In fact, they kind of found the opposite. These researchers looked at 348 female pelvises from around the world, from 20 four different parts of the world. And what they found was that these birth canals were far from carbon copies of each other. There was a lot of variation and certain regions tend to have certain shapes that other regions didn't. Huh. And so that really says that it must not be evolutionary forces that are sort of shaping these pelvises. Or the ones that we thought. Or the ones that we thought. It must be some other factors that are playing a role. Mm -hmm. So what, that means we're going back to the draw, drawing board, understanding pelvis evolution. It does, but it also sort of has some impl interesting implications for childbirth because when we're trying to figure out how the baby moves right. through the birth canal, things like that, it may actually inform practices around childbirth. So it's not just kind of an interesting story there. It may actually be some real world applications as well. Okay. Now let's talk about, I don't know that this is my favorite, but it, I just watching this story come together was so interesting. This is the first video of living anglerfish mating. What does it look like, Dave? Right. Anglerfish are these really, really weird fish. They, they're really creepy. They live really deep in the ocean and scientists know almost nothing about them. And that's because it's really hard to get much less, not even a video, but even a photograph of mm -hmm. these guys when they're alive. If you bring them up to the surface, they can't deal with the change of pressure. And it's a really, it's kind of a, a, a disaster. And so What's really cool about this, this is an exclusive that we had. We always love exclusives. <laughs> this is the first video taken of anglerfish mating. And it's just sort of as bizarre as the fish themselves. The scientists sort of captured this large female and she's got this much smaller male, they call it a dwarf male, that's literally attached to her, kind of permanently attached to her body. And he sort of functions as this sperm sac, essentially. So what, what happens, what they think when anglerfish mate is the male attaches the female and actually becomes part of the female. He sort of 
grows into her and almost becomes like a part of her body. So she's supplying him with nutrients. Right. She's eating food. He can't eat food anymore. Can't do anything, basically. But he does supply sperm that she can then lay fertile eggs. Right. And there's this amazing video that researchers captured with this deep sea submersible that showed all this. And it became, was it our most popular? Oh, absolutely. But by far our most popular video of the year. And if you take a look at it, it's not hard to see why. And the quality really, I mean, it's, it's well lit. A lot of people say that it looks like it's CGI. Oh, really? (laughs) It's just so crystal clear, which is very unexpected. Most of the anglerfish photos or anglerfish corpses that you see are pretty tattered and bad shape. So this is just really amazing. Yes. Let's finish out uh, the ones that we're going to talk about. We're not going to list them all out here today. This one is about tiny quantum engines. Why did this make the cut? Well, you know, I feel like every year we've got a quantum physics story on our list because, first of all, we do a lot of quantum physics stories that uh, others don't. So these these tend to be kind of exclusives for us, which I just said we like a lot. But they're also just, you know, the quantum realm is such a bizarre realm. And this is another example of it. This is this really weird property of quantum physics that when you try to measure something at the quantum level, you actually change it. You change its position, its distribution. And in this this new study, researchers found that they could actually harness this change to create energy or to create an an engine that would operate with near 100% efficiency. Okay. How big is this engine? And and I should back up and say they actually didn't create this. They actually theoretically created. They said it's theoretically possible. And these are engines are very, very small. This would be like the engine the size of an atom or a molecule. So it's not something you would necessarily put in your car. But this efficiency is 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 amazing, even though it's sort of, sort of theoretical. When you think of a car, the engines the the engines about twenty five percent efficient. Right. So if you've got something that's one hundred percent efficient, you can imagine that you know you could create these really maybe swarm of tiny tiny molecular machines. Now the big question is what would you use them for? Right. Um, and really, how hard would it be to create these things in real life? But just the the science around this, the physics around this, is really, really fascinating to dig into to figure out like how something like this would even be possible mm-hmm. in the first place. Okay, Dave. And as I mentioned, we're not going to reveal the rest of the top 10. So please go to the site. News. Including our most popular story oh, of the year. including the most popular. <laughs> but one thing that struck me looking at this list is what is not there. <laughs> and that is a cat story or a dog story, which is just shocking. So you know, we had a pretty popular story on Viking cats. Why didn't that make the cut? Yeah. yeah, and just like we have a quantum physics story every year, I feel like we've got a cat or a dog story every year, just because I personally love those stories. Also, the stories tend to do very well. So we had, uh, last week, we had a story about Viking cats, and yeah. this was another exclusive for us. This is a story about how cats seem to have changed size, gotten bigger during the Viking era. And this was an analysis of a bunch of cat bones that were found. Some of these cats were sort of skinned for their fur. Uh, So there's there's a lot of interesting history here, too. The story actually ended up being a lot of fun. It became very popular, but all that was sort of happening while Mm. we were putting together top 10 lists. So it didn't quite squeak in there, but it's a story that was a lot of fun, and I highly encourage listeners to go check it out. And I'm going to expect at least one cat or dog story next year. I hope so. I hope so. All right. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. Read the rest of the top online news stories at news.sciencemag.org. Stay tuned for Megan Cantwell's interview with news editor Tim Appenzeller on this year's Breakthrough of the Year. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Atlassian's Ops Genie. Incidents happen, and they require complex coordination 
between operations and software development teams who are putting out fires every day. That's why getting alerts immediately is critical. Thankfully, there's OpsGenie by Atlassian. OpsGenie empowers dev and ops teams to plan for service disruptions and stay in control during incidents. It also gives teams the power to respond quickly and efficiently to unplanned issues and helps to notify all the right people through a smart combination of scheduling and escalation paths that account for things like time zones, holidays. Better yet, OpsGenie allows for deep flexibility in how, when, and where alerts are deployed. With over 200 integrations like Jira, Amazon CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic, and more. Plus, it tracks all activity and provides useful insights to improve future incident responses. With OpsGenie, your next incident doesn't stand a chance. Visit OpsGenie.com to sign up to get a free company account and add up to five team members. That's OpsGenie.com, O-P-S-G-E-N-I-E.com. Never miss a critical alert again with OpsGenie. Several months ago, science compiled an extensive list of significant discoveries and advancements that have occurred throughout 2018. Ultimately, that list was whittled down to a short list of nine runners-up and one winner, the breakthrough of the year. I'm here with news editor of Science, Tim Appenzeller, to talk through a few of these advancements. Hey, Tim. Hey, Megan. So let's get started with one of the runners-up, which was that the first RNA interference, or RNAi drug, entered the market this year. How exactly does this drug treat diseases? What it does is it blocks the genetic message from the gene to the cell's protein-making machinery. So it actually gets right at the root of the disease process. RNAi was discovered 20 years ago, but it took a while for it to reach the market. Well, it works uh, through small RNAs that trigger the breakdown of this message that I mentioned. And the problem was getting those small RNAs to the right spot in the body. So in the future, we could probably see other diseases that it's marketed for as well. I think we'll see more drugs following the same approach, yes. Another one on the list was gains for the Me Too movement within the sciences and what changes were catalyzed within science organizations and research institutions as a result of this movement. Well, several big science organizations began developing or at least talking about mechanisms to take away honors from people who have been found guilty of sexual harassment. So this is the kind of thing that the Me Too movement has been pushing for for some time. Now it appears to be starting to happen. One of my personal favorites was the discovery of a 31-kilometer-wide impact crater under Greenland, but they're not sure exactly when it hit. It could have a range of anywhere between 12,000 to 100,000 years ago. When it hit, what would have been the implications for the climate and life on Earth at that moment? Well, it would have melted an awful lot of ice. And if this had happened at a key moment about 13,000 years ago, it could have caused a climate event called the Younger Dryas, when the world, which was warming after the end of the last ice age, suddenly returned to glacial conditions. And the, the trigger of this has been a mystery. This crater raises the possibility that the impact, if it happened 13,000 years ago, could have unleashed this flood into the North Atlantic, which would have shut down a set of currents mm -hmm. and triggered the climate shift. So science's breakthrough of the year in 2016 was the detection of gravitational waves, a messenger from a distant universe. And one of the runners-up from this year is related to that discovery. A new type of messenger, neutrinos, were detected deep in the ice of the South Pole. What are these particles and where did they come from? 
So these are very lightweight particles that are really hard to detect, but they've set up this detector, which is basically a cubic kilometer of ice threaded with light detectors. It's very clear ice, and so when a neutrino flies through it, it can sometimes trigger a faint flash of light. And from the direction of this flash, they can figure out where the neutrino came from. This year, they traced one neutrino back to a blazar, which is a kind of very bright galaxy with a black hole at its center. It's the first neutrino to be traced to this kind of source outside our galaxy. And it suggests that these blazars might be the source of other high-energy particles, like the high-energy cosmic rays that sometimes strike the Earth. So now moving past these runners-up to the breakthrough of the year, which was development cell by cell. And being able to observe cell development wasn't just one discovery necessarily, but a combination of technologies working together. Could you explain what advances are encompassed within this one breakthrough? So it's really three techniques. First, the ability to extract thousands of cells from a developing embryo. Mm Then the ability to sequence their RNA, which tells you what genes are active, cell by cell. You can get basically the genetic activity in each cell. And then there are techniques for tracing cell lineages within embryos. So the RNA sequencing gives you a snapshot of what's going on in an embryo. If you can trace each cell's descendants, you can see where that type of cell, how it contributes to the building of the embryo. So you put it all together and you get this picture in space and time of how each cell kind of assumes its identity and gives rise to new cells to build an embryo. What organisms and organs development were researchers able to see through these techniques? Well, they've looked at a bunch of them. The big advance this year was moving these techniques into vertebrates, animals like ourselves, really, zebrafish, salamander limbs, and several others. Besides tracking development, what were other ways that researchers used single-cell RNA sequencing? It's revealed things about um, the development of disease. So you can look at tissues, you can identify the variety of cells that uh, make up those tissues, and you can watch cells change as as a disease develops, for example, a cancer. What do you think we can expect to see in the future as a result of this breakthrough? Well, I think deeper understanding of the way organisms develop, the way limbs grow, the way and the way diseases develop, and that undoubtedly will lead to medical treatments. So although we had these breakthroughs of the year, we also had breakdowns. Could you go over what that means? Well, these are science-related developments that are not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that really were steps back. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, we think of science as a march of progress. Well, it isn't always. And so uh, our major breakdown of the year was really the the gap between what science is telling us about climate change and the urgency of it and what policymakers are doing or not doing. One kind of related advancement that would be the attribution science made gains this year, though, right? Yeah, yeah. No, we see more clearly than ever that climate change is taking place and that it is getting worse fast and that it is affecting the world we live in in very powerful ways. The succession of powerful hurricanes, fires in California, heat waves in far northern latitudes, Mm -hmm. all of these can be tied to greater or lesser extent to climate change. Were there any other breakdowns included in the list? Yes. So late in the year, there was the claim that an embryo had been genetically modified and then implanted and brought to term. So babies have been born that have been genetically modified. 
in ways that they will pass on to their children. And this happened without the kind of debate and without the kinds of safeguards that most scientists and ethicists believe are necessary and without proper you know, consideration of the health risks to these children. All right. Thank you so much, Tim. You're welcome. Pleasure. That was Tim Appenzeller, news editor of Science. If you want to read more about the breakthrough of 2018, the runners-up, and the breakdowns of the year, visit sciencemag.org news. Keep listening for our roundup of the year in books and some suggestions for books that you might want to buy as gifts for the holiday season. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the book segment of the podcast. This is Jen Goldbeck, and we're doing the year in review. I'm here with Valerie Thompson, and we're going to talk about our favorite books and maybe our least favorite books. That would be easier if we had a couple cocktails, I suppose. <laughs> uh, things we remembered and give you some recommendations if you're looking for last minute holiday gifts. So, Jen, you interviewed 11 authors for us this year in 2018. One of them I'm thinking of is especially uh, timely here at the end of the year. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah. So we did The Perfectionist by Simon Winchester, who is just a wonderful interview, a charming guy who's written a lot of great books. And we had a really long conversation. And I think part of it that didn't make it into his segment on the podcast, you know, this year is the end of the kilogram being defined by that lump of metal that I think is in France. And that's an example of this really precision engineering. And we're getting rid of that and replacing it with a much more accurate and scientific definition. But he talked about how, you know, there's something a little sad in like us as humans not being able to make that reference kilogram anymore. So I thought that that was interesting. I'd forgotten he said that. And then in the news, just you know, in the last few weeks, we've heard the kilogram is going away and you see this beautiful little kilogram. It's going to be locked into a museum and not worth anything anymore. And that that was a nice tie back to his book on you know how we can create these very finely milled things and, and how beautiful human precision can be. I love that. I love that because it's just this kind of like human story behind this very precise, surreal kind of thing. All right. So can you talk about, did did any of the books really draw you in? Was there any that was on a specific topic that you were really intrigued by? Yeah, we did Clean Meat by Paul Shapiro, which is about lab-grown meat. And I was really excited when you gave me this book because I'm a vegetarian. And uh, okay. oh, all right. So it was really interesting to look at How's that industry going? It's much farther along than I thought it was. And also talking about what are the ways that we can get people to do this. So, you know, one of the examples he said is that a lot of people are going to be skeezed out eating meat that was grown in a lab. But leather would be a really interesting way to do this. Skin is very easy to grow relatively, you know, if you're growing it in a lab. There we could replace the leather that we're using that's coming from animals and replace it with something grown in a lab. That's not the end game. You want to replace the whole animal needing to be killed. But it was really interesting because it brought together this kind of commercialization and kind of human component of it in addition to all the other stuff. So I thought it was really interesting. You also have a favorite book this year? I do have a favorite book. The book that was kind of my favorite book that we reviewed, not on the podcast, but in the magazine, is a book called The Feather Thief. Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century by Kirk Wallace Johnson. The book is centered around a theft that occurred at a natural history museum in the UK in 2009. In the early hours of June 23rd, a man named Edwin Rist broke into the Natural History Museum at Tring and filled a roller suitcase 
with 299 bird specimens. As the story comes out, we learn that he is a member of an elite community of Victorian fly tires, flies being the brightly colored lures that people used to catch fish. And his plan was to dismantle these bird specimens and sell the feathers to other fly tying enthusiasts so that he could buy a new flute. Because did I mention uh, that he was a flautist who had earlier that day performed at the London Royal Academy of Music? This is, just gets more insane the more you talk yeah, about it's a, it. Yeah, it's like a crazy story. <laughs> so, you know, he ends up getting caught. And, you know, instead of getting this money for a new flute, he ends up being sentenced to 12 months in prison and he receives a fine. What happened to the birds? Well, that's the thing. Like, once these specimens were removed from the museum. And once they were separated from the little tags that are on them that tell you like what the specimen is and when it was collected and by whom, they don't have any more scientific value. So even the specimens that were recovered, those lose their value. A lot of them were dismantled. Just the agony of like what has been lost to science. And so it's it's a really interesting, I think I'm like kind of like a true crime person too. <laughs> so <laughs> this is why that, that story really res- resonates with me, I think. That sounds fantastic. So recommendations, woman with the shelves and shelves full of books. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to recommend Philip Moriarty's When the Uncertainty Principle Goes to 11 or How to Explain Quantum Physics with Heavy Metal. It's a great premise. The idea is that music is an ideal platform for introducing concepts like the physics of waves and harmonics and resonance and energy conservation. And so he kind of like does these cute analogies where he'll show, he shows how physics' famous double-slit experiment and Eddie Van Halen's brown sound both <laughs> share this key feature, which is waveform interference. He looks at the statistical me- mechanisms of crowds in a mosh pit. Um, he compares the sound of the Big Bang with the loudest heavy metal concert. So very fun. Physics is not my strong suit, so I'm always kind of on the hunt for things that can lead me to it slowly, I guess. <laughs> so I thought this book was really fun. For the politically minded in the audience, I'm going to recommend Liliana Mason's Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. So this is like a, a very uh, kind of relevant one for our time. So it looks at how political polarization became such a prominent feature of our um, political system. She kind of argues that there's become more and more overlap between our other identities, so a person's race, their religious affiliation, whether they think of themselves as liberal, conservative, and then like whether we consider ourselves to be a Democrat or a Republican. And so when we start identifying psychologically with a particular party, we start to experience this animosity towards the other team and a desire for our own team to win, which kind of becomes an end unto itself, even if we don't have particularly strong feelings for the the issue. So it's it's a really interesting look at this thing that we're all kind of wondering about. And she, she does have some ideas for how we might try to mitigate those. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I hope that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. I hope somebody takes them to heart. So you had a recommendation for gift for a gift this year too. So I, uh, I love to do combination gifts. And I think we talked about that when we did our year in the review last year, where I think we had a wine book and I'm like, oh, it'd be great. You give a bottle of wine and then this book. Uh, so this year, I recommend you get a bottle of Lysol disinfectant. And then this book, Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live by Rob Dunn. Uh, this is a book that I got sent from the publisher. I just looked it up on Amazon today. It's the number one bestseller in ichthyology 
on Amazon, which is a pretty cool distinction. (laughs) Um, But it's sort of about how we like aspire to have these super clean, pristine homes and how they're totally not. And there's all of these bugs and organisms and stuff living in there with us. One of my favorite examples from it that I think opens with towards the beginning is talking about this research lab where they're looking at these organisms that live in like thermal vents, these super high temperatures, and how we'd never really been able to find them before because our regular lab temperatures are so cold. Even our hot lab temperatures are so cold that they couldn't live. And then you'd put them at these hot temperatures and, oh, they were there. And then we started learning about them. And in the lab, they're like, maybe these are actually all over the place and not just in these thermal vents and started looking at like their coffee pot, which didn't have any, but other places where there's hot water and they found them there. So there actually are these what seem like really exotic organisms, like, oh, they're in these thermal vents, but actually they live in all these crazy environments that we create in these small places around where we live and talks about how our weird household obsessions actually can kind of drive evolution in some of these microorganisms. But yeah, I think that'd make a nice gift with some Raid or some Lysol, which <laughs> just is a nice little I don't joke know. Is that like embracing or rejecting like the premise of the book? <laughs> <laughs> this is Jen's last episode as our host. She's been hosting this segment for us for the last two years. So I just want to say thank you on behalf of all of us at Science. This has been, it's been great to work with you. Uh, I've loved listening to your interviews. You've done a great job and we're really going to miss you. I've had a super fun time. I love that I now have a couple shelves of books that I've reviewed for science. And uh, as a fiction reader by choice, it has been a, a really great opportunity to find like the best new science books that are out there and then also get to have my own personal conversations with the people who are writing them. So I've had a great time. Great. I'm glad we converted you. Yeah, he did. Uh, <laughs> I'm now reading all sorts of new ones. <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks, everyone. Have a very Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Happy New Year and Happy Holidays and all those things. And uh, someone else will be back with you in the new year with more books. Just a reminder that this episode has been brought to you in part by Atlassian's Ops Genie. Incidents happen. Thankfully, Ops Genie empowers dev and ops teams to plan for service disruptions and stay in control during incidents. It also gives teams the power to respond quickly and efficiently to unplanned issues and helps to notify all the right people through a smart combination of scheduling and escalation paths. With OpsGenie, your next incident doesn't stand a chance. Visit OpsGenie.com to sign up to get a free company account and add up to five team members. That's O-P-S-G-E-N-I-E.com, OpsGenie.com. Never miss a critical alert again with OpsGenie. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast.aas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. 
Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.